Good morning. Our reading this morning is from Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point in the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and angels came and attended him. This is the word of our Lord Jesus Christ. Before I uh, embark on this sermon, I, w- I just want to say thanks to our band for leading us in worship. Um, they take us right to the place we need to be, and I just want to say thanks. You know, every once in a while, well, quite often, Rob breaks into a sermonette, you know. He just can't help himself. He's a preacher. Um, that's not a criticism. That's a compliment. Uh, it's a great way to enter into the presence of God. And um, as I sat there and, and heard those songs, I thought, I can't imagine a better selection for the topic we're about to engage right now. So where is God? He's out there. He's invisible. He's spirit. He's transcendent. How could he possibly understand you or me? That's a legitimate question. As a matter of fact, it's a question that many religions ask. The answer from the Christian perspective, is rather straightforward. The reason God understands us is he became one of us in the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, We know the answer, right? I just said it. You could have repeated it. You wouldn't have needed my prompting. But don't you still ask the question? Even when you know the answer, don't you sometimes ask the question, God, do you really understand me? I wonder what would be the most resounding answer for a yes. A yes, God understands me. What would be the greatest argument for yes, God understands me? Maybe you would say, well, the way I could be confident to say yes, God understands me is if God himself actually experienced loneliness, deep, depressing loneliness. Or maybe if God experienced abuse, serious abuse. Or if God experienced sickness or even death. 
Then he'd get me. He'd understand. Well, again, you know the answer to all those questions, right? In the person of Jesus Christ, he experienced loneliness and sickness and abuse and death. So the answer is he understands. Let me tell you what would be the most resounding yes to the answer, does he understand, from my perspective. I'm not suggesting it's the answer, but for me, it's the most powerful answer. It would be this. Was God really tempted by sin? Did God in the person of Jesus Christ really struggle the way I do? Because even though we know it to be true that he struggled with sin, somehow it just doesn't seem quite real, does it? After all, he was the son of God. That would be the most compelling answer to the question, does God understand? Yes, he understands because he struggled with temptation the way I do. I want to say uh, several things about this passage. The first one is this. The temptations that we see described in Matthew and also in Luke, those temptations were symbolic. They were symbolic. Uh, this summer, we took a little time off, my wife and I, delightful time to be away and almost felt guilty for being away for oh, every once in a while, but not much. We really enjoyed being away, but <clears throat> one of the things we did while we were away was a long-awaited trip to Italy. We'd never been there together before, and um, we had promised, or I promised her, that we would go someday because I'd been there without her. And so we went to Italy this summer. And one of the wonderful things about Italy, of course, is art. Right, We landed in Rome. We spent most of our time in Rome. We went to Florence. We went to Pompeii. We did the Amalfi Coast. Lots of beautiful things, but art is incredible in Italy. And my wife loves art. I mean, she loves art. She studied art at Yale when she was doing graduate work, and then she was a docent over here at IU at the museum, and, and she loves teaching it to kids now. It's just like she just loves art. And, and I do too. I, I, I really do. I love great art, um, but there's a lot of museums in Italy, <laughs> and you can spend way too much time in one of those places, and so I never have thought of myself as being a person who is afflicted with ADD, you know, attention deficit disorder, but when I'm in an art museum more than about 30 minutes, it kicks in in a big way. I think if people were watching, I'd be twitching. Um, I'd be doing things. I, get, I pra practically get lightheaded sometimes because I just can't look at it anymore. And I promised I would be patient. And we had friends, and we did it. I made it. I was darn near saintly. But I can tell you, she loves art, and I love art, but I just can take only so much of it. Now, that's just part of the story. The other part of the story is this. When we were there, we saw some of the most spectacular works of art. Amazing. In the Vatican, you walk through in certain sections, you look at a portrait, and you say, man, that guy had a way with a brush. And then you approach the portrait, and you realize there's no paint. It's tiny little pieces of tile, mosaics, that have created what seems to be a crystal clear portrait. We saw tapestry, great big huge rugs, centuries old, that painted pictures with thread. 
that was just unbelievable. How could people do that with Fred? And we saw one gigantic portrait after another of landscape scenes, but especially of people within the landscape scenes. Here's what I want to say. When you look at one of those great pieces of art, and there's one or two or, or more key figures in the foreground, you don't just look at them to understand them. You look at the backdrop. The backdrop tells a story concerning the people. The temptations of Jesus and the life of Jesus is like that. And we need to continually remind ourselves in this series on rediscovering Jesus that when we see Jesus act or speak, we see Jesus act or speak in the foreground and the background routinely is the Old Testament Scriptures. Sometimes it's not blatant. Sometimes it's figurative and symbolic. And sometimes interpreters have gone way over the edge on the symbolism. But it's true. He spoke with the background of the Old Testament. So when you enter these temptations, you symbolically understand them in ways that reflect the Old Testament. One thing that's clear according to many, many scholars is that this passage on the temptations is a reflection of the first temptation where Adam and Eve failed. The first Adam fails miserably when confronted by temptation. The second Adam or the final Adam, Jesus Christ does not fail. He passes the test. As a matter of fact, those 40 days in the wilderness where Christ is suffering at the temptation and the hand of Satan, it reflects symbolically those 40 years in the desert where Israel, when tempted to idolatry, gave in, did not pass the test, and suffered for 40 years of wandering and alienation because of sin. The perfect Adam, before the fall, falls. Israel, the perfect nation to bring the blessing of God into the world, crushes under the weight of sin. And Jesus be Christ becomes the new Adam and he becomes the new Israel and in his very body and existence delivers the promise that was to be delivered through Israel. That's really absolutely beautiful. And we don't want to forget those themes. So the temptations are symbolic in that way. The background is the Old Testament. The fulfillment is in the foreground, which is in the New Testament. Second thing about these temptations, the temptations were representative. All of the temptations that Jesus faced in this episode, three of them in their entirety, were representative of a lot of things, but one of the things they were representative of was the temptation he was going to face in the future. It was a composite of what was going to happen to him as he walked the road towards the cross. Notice one of the temptations, or actually all of them, uh, use reference to if you're the son of God, right? It's not like Satan didn't know who he was. Satan was essentially saying this, if you're really the son of God, think about it, my friend. If you're really the son of God, is the son of God going to let you starve out here in the desert? Especially when you, the Son of God, have the power to turn that stone into bread. So just go ahead and do it. 
if you're the son of God, God wouldn't treat you that way. Jesus says, no, I won't do it because God is my strength and the word is my nourishment. You, you know what that temptation reveals itself later as? The cry of dereliction. Jesus is on the cross, spread with his hands and his feet, dying a death that is literally fully human. And he shouts out in the midst of that, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why would you, my Father, do this to me? We're right back in the desert. If you're really the Son of God, would God do that to you? The temptations are future for Jesus, not just current in this issue. He struggled in this particular situation in the desert with that enticing idea from Satan himself. Look, I know what you want. You want to save the nations of the world. That's the gospel, right? I'll help you save the nations of the world. If you'll just bow down and serve me, we'll get this over with quickly. Then they're yours. I release them to you. They're all yours, and you can do all the good that you're called to do with them. And Jesus says, oh, no, I can't do that. That's not God's way. And routinely, over and over again, in the life of Jesus, the same issue comes back up. The crowds want to, by popular acclamation, make him king right here and right now. They do it on a number of different occasions. And every time Jesus reiterates what he did here. No, I cannot do that. It is not time. Those temptations point to the future in a variety of ways. He struggles in the Garden of Gethsemane. Just like the temptation here. To avoid the cross. When Jesus is in the middle of the intense pressure of the future of the cross. He says, Father, is there really another way? Can, can we figure out plan B? You don't think that was a real question? I think it was a gut-level honest question. So these temptations point to the future in Jesus' life. That's why they're representative. But they're representative for another reason as well. They represent our temptations. Now you say to yourself, oh, come on. Those three temptations, I got a lot more than those. He has no idea how I've been tempted. Well, a passage in the book of Hebrews suggests that he does. It basically says, reflecting back on this temptation and all the temptations that face Jesus, it says this. It's, it's a wonderful passage. It says, we have a high priest, namely Jesus, who is not untouched by our afflictions, our infirmities, our weight of sin. The weight of sin. Not the activity of sin, because Jesus never participated, but the weight of the temptation of sin which presses down on us all the time. The weight of the sin of this world. He says, we have a high priest who understands us and can sympathize with us because he basically walked in our shoes. And he was tempted in every way, just like we were, yet without sin. What does that mean? He was tempted in every particular aspect, exactly like I was tempted? No. It means that the temptations that he faced in this episode and in his life were a composite of the reality that we call particular temptations. 
I mean, it would be foolish of me or of you to conjecture that Jesus knew what it was like to be struggling with the temptation in some area of technology. Huh? It didn't exist. So it's not as to particulars that he suffered like us in every way. It's in essence. What does that mean? A number of years ago, a long time now, a movie came out called The Last Temptation of Christ. I didn't like the movie then. I don't like the movie now. The main reason I didn't like it then, the main reason I don't like it now, and I watched it because I wanted to know, was because it twisted and distorted numerous things concerning Jesus. Just patently unhistorical. On the other hand, you know what it did? It outraged conservative Christians. Not primarily because of the historical inaccuracies, but because they didn't want their Jesus facing temptation in such a human way. And in one episode in the movie that I'll never forget, there's this figure of a woman who's attracting Jesus in sexual temptation to come to her. And he stands on the outside of that relationship and struggles like he did at the cross. It's like his whole being is shaking. And Christians wanted to say, no, that can't be my Jesus. Oh, really? I'll tell you what. I'm not averse to controversial comments. That is your Jesus. He did struggle in every way, just like we did, and yet without sin. His temptations were representative of our temptations, and his temptations represent real human struggle. Now, you may look at some of those temptations in the desert and say, man, that's not real temptation because he had divine knowledge, right? When the Satan tempts him to go a different route, Jesus knows that that's not going to work out. He understands the future, the beginning and the end. First of all, I don't know what he understood and what he didn't understand, okay? I'm just admitting that right up front. I think the mystery of God's deity and humanity in the person of Jesus Christ is a mystery I haven't been able to crack yet. When did he know everything concerning himself? I'm not sure. Here's what I do know. He did have divine knowledge that was far beyond anything we would ever possess as a human being because he was God, okay? And because he had that kind of divine knowledge, we tend to want to think it had to be easier for him because knowledge is an insulator against temptation, isn't it? Really? Since when? In a philosophy class that I was teaching a few years ago, I was introducing the students to the concept that virtue and knowledge are identical. To know the truth is to do the truth. To know the good is to do the good. I was introducing them to that idea, not because it was mine, but because it's a, well, a robust philosophical debate. And so I said, I want you to debate this. And that's a delightful thing as a teacher. You just stand back and watch them fight, you know, and you get to moderate. It was a beautiful thing. 
So they get they went after it. They went after it, man, and they were debating it. And down near the end, one kid raised his hand and he said, "I don't think virtue is the same thing as knowledge, or to know the good is to do the good." And I said, "So why not for you?" He said, "The kid is about 19." He said, "Because I'm a smoker." He said, "I smoke all the time." And he said, "I know it's going to kill me, and I don't care. I'm going to keep smoking." You say, what a sorry soul. Oh, don't say that. Just say he's a reflection of you. Because we are full of patterns in our life, habits that are fully self-destructible, right? We do damage to ourselves, and we have full knowledge of the fact that it's going to damage us, and we do it anyway. So the knowledge doesn't insulate us against the sin. I don't think it insulated Jesus against the sin either. As a matter of fact, it might have accentuated it. It might have made the temptation more difficult because the knowledge was even more divine. The third thing is the temptations in these episodes and in the life of Jesus. The temptations were redemptive. See, the mistake we do not want to make as we try to rediscover Jesus is to think of him only as a historical figure who went through episodic times where he struggled with this and did that and performed a miracle and the episode was this and then the episode was that. No, 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 no. If we do that, we're just playing secular history. What we need to do is to see behind the Jesus of history or historical episodes to the reality of what was going on in the person of Jesus Christ for humanity and how the activity of that real history was producing redemption for people. We need to keep an eye open for that as well. Which means this. This Jesus of history who walks through these temptations and experiences victory over sin does that on behalf of us and his activity becomes redemptive for us. It's not just about Jesus resisting temptation. It's about Jesus resisting temptation and walking to the cross and dying and rising again because he never knew sin so that we might be redeemed. So the reality of his resisting temptation is a cosmic reality and it's a personal reality for us. It's not just some episode for Jesus. That's amazingly good news. I mean, that's why I can't say it quietly. I feel like exploding. It's incredible. You know what it means? It means that our failure, our sin which is inevitable and repetitive and episodic is not final. Because of Jesus Christ, our repetitive, episodic sin, even though we fail, does not destroy life in us if we trust in the one who destroyed sin and death. Okay, when I grew up, we used to shout and stuff and run the aisles in this crazy church that I lived in, and I feel like doing that right now. I'm sorry. That's unbelievable, isn't it? 
That's unbelievable. Okay, before I explode, let me get to my last point, and that is this. Temptations, these temptations, they provide insights for living, don't they? Yeah, they do. One incredible insight for living, I think, that's buried in these temptations is this. Uh, Listen to me carefully. Sometimes temptation is simply about timing. It's not that the choice is wrong. Is it the choice is not now. And you're tempted to make the right choice at the wrong time. Example, back to Jesus and the stone and the bread. Satan says to him, if you're the son of God, would God really treat you that way? Why don't you turn that stone into bread to satisfy your hunger, to keep yourself from dying? And Jesus says, no. Man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. I'm going to stay here hungry, and God's going to take care of me. But wait. There was another time where that happened. Jesus is teaching on a hillside. and There's 5,000 people there. On another occasion, 4,000 people there. None of them have any food. And the disciples say to him, wait, master, let me tell you something. If you haven't already caught on, it's late in the day. These people haven't eaten all day. They've been here with us all day. We got a health problem on our hands. People are going to be dropping like flies on the way home. This is a critical problem. We got to do something. And Jesus says, okay, let me give you my lunch. Oh, no. The disciples said, let's use our lunch too. No, they didn't. They didn't have any lunch either. That's the implication. Nobody did. Who had any lunch? One boy with that tiny little lunch. And Jesus takes that bread and does exactly what Satan tempted him to do in the desert. But on that occasion, it's the will of God. On that occasion, it glorifies God. So sometimes temptation is all about timing. You're tempted to do what may be right at the wrong time. Second thing we learn about temptation in these episodes is that you can resist temptation and still live a full life. Now you might say, well, that's a no-brainer. Not really. It's not a no-brainer because every time you get to the crossroads and the intensity of temptation, what's your thought? I can't live without it. If I don't give in, I'm going to explode. If I can't just taste, I'm going to starve. If I can't eat, I'm a dead man. It's not true. Avoiding temptation, avoiding sin, gives you actually a full life, a life you were made for. It might be painful in the short term, but in the long term, It's part of eternal life. So the lie that you have in your head, no, the lie we all have in our heads, the lie I have in my head, I don't want to pretend like I'm different than anybody else or you're different than Jesus or any of us are different than any of the rest of us. The lie that's inside every one of our own heads. When we feel like we can't go any further without giving in to temptation, the lie is this, I can't live without it. It's a lie. Not only can you live without it, 
You can flourish without it. The third insight we see in these temptation narratives is this. Temptation is always about twisting something good. Always. It begins in the Garden of Eden. There's nothing wrong with that place. Not a single thing. It was good twisted. It was Satan messing it up. And that is what sin is, what temptation is. It's something that's absolutely, perfectly good, twisted. You see it in the narrative. What does Satan use routinely in the temptations? The Word of God. He uses the Word of God and twists it. And Jesus says, no, I've got to set the record straight. That's not what it meant. That's not what it's for. You took something good and you twisted it. I um, have mentioned numerous times one of my all-time favorite books, Screw Tape Letters. By the way, um, the students, high school students, um, did this as part of their book club. Um, if you're a high school student and you're not part of that group, you need to be. They do some serious stuff that will help you. They went through screw tape letters and analyzed them and thought about, thought about them for life. And when they were going through it, I know one of the places um, they came across. It was this passage where screw tape, who, by the way, is the senior devil, counseling the junior devil, Wormwood, about how to snare human beings with sin and temptation. Screw tape routinely says, oh, you're not doing it right. I'll tell you how to really get them. So on this occasion, Wormwood, the junior devil, is trying to attract these people who are Christians through pleasure. And he wants to destroy them through pleasure. The senior devil, Screwtape, says to the younger devil, never forget that when we're dealing with any pleasure in its healthy and normal and satisfying form, we are in some sense on the enemy's ground. That's God's ground. It's the devil talking. I know, Screwtape goes on, speaking to Wormwood, I know we've won many a soul through pleasure. All the same. It's his, that is, God's invention, not ours. He made the pleasures, and all our research so far has not enabled us to produce one. God created it and named it good. And Satan twisted and continues to twist it for us so that it is bad. So, quick reminder about facing temptation. One, you can live a full life without giving in to temptation. It's actually eternal life. Two, remind yourself of the truth that comes from the Word of God. Jesus did it over and over again. I got a second, I got to say this. When Jesus used the Word of God, he didn't use it like a magic wand. He didn't say, okay, I'll quote it and the temptation will go away because it's so magic it can't stand in the presence of God's word. Well, you've proved that wrong, right? I have. 
There's been occasions when I've used it like a magic wand, pronounced the words as if it was a hocus pocus and the temptation would go away and it doesn't happen. Why is that true? Well, first of all, because God's word is not a magic wand. The second reason is true is because if you look at what Jesus did when he spoke about the word, he entered into the truth of the word. He didn't use the word as a magic wand. He said, I am going to be transformed by the truth that has been spoken in this word so I can enter into the truth and step outside the lying temptation. So it's a process. It's not a magic wand. It's a reality of stepping mentally and spiritually into the truth of God through the word. And it must be done over and over again to remind yourself of what is true and then that word becomes a way to resist temptation. So first you can live without the sin that so easily besets you and have a full life. Two, you remind yourself of the truth of God's word. And three, remember God understands and has defeated sin. So even though your sin is repetitive and episodic, it is not final because Jesus has pronounced an end to the curse when you follow him. And finally, every temptation is originally a good that's been twisted. What's our job? Among other things, to identify the good. Not the twisted good, but the good. And pursue it passionately. That's following Christ. He's made everything good. He asked us to pursue the true good and not be fooled by the temptation. It routinely happens, doesn't it? We get fooled, but we will not die because of Christ. And we'll find life by pursuing the true good that God delivers to us. Let's pray together. God, I thank you for um, your word. Um, Thank you for Jesus, especially uh, your divine word. Um, that gave us an illustration of what God was like and demonstrated uh, to us in more than just spoken words, but in his life, the truth of the divine word. We pray, Lord, that you will uh, reinforce uh, the truth of your divine word into our hearts, that you will allow it to transform our minds and our hearts, that you will help us this week as we face temptation, which is, is inevitable as waking up in the morning that those temptations uh, will be understood in a different way in light of your grace, that we will pronounce uh, victory over them, although episodically they may haunt us and discourage us and defeat us on occasion. We pronounce victory over them in the name of Jesus because as those who are followers of Jesus, you have defeated sin and death forever. We pray you will give us uh, the ability to live in the fullness of the life that you wish us to live, that you'll give us the grace to understand who you are. And in the words of that song, to stay close to your chest. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen.